Well, good morning. It's grateful. I'm grateful to be able to stand before you today. Chris is right. This is absolutely, positively awkward. It is. Got to admit, I came up last night by myself and and practiced in front of uh, in front of no one, just to kind of relieve myself of the awkwardness, and it didn't help. Uh, this is still very awkward, but I'm grateful to be able to be with you today. Um, it's awkward because this isn't the way it's supposed to be. We know that. Um, and and I, want, I want you to know that, that we truly miss all of you. Uh, we want to see you. We, we want to worship together. We'll do everything we can every day to stay connected and to provide things for you, um, all the while yearning for the day that we'll be together again. Um, and so we, we hope that is very, very soon. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to continue today, as Chris said, doing what we always do, which is expositionally preach through books of the Bible. Dylan, Dylan stood up here last week, did a great job. Uh, he was a little nervous, I knew that, and so he started with the story. Uh, always, it always does kind of help to humble yourself a little bit to get rid of some of the nervousness. But as he was telling this story, it reminded me of my basketball past. And so Dylan, I got it for no one else I have to share with you, because I, as I listened to that story, I thought, okay, you made a layup at the wrong basket at Lincoln Junior High School. You guys still probably won by 40 points. Lincoln Junior High School, Carbondale beat everybody to death uh, at the junior high level. But it reminded me when I was in high school. Listen, I went to high school, played basketball during a very, very dark time in the history of Harrisburg Athletics. In fact, my, my sophomore year, um, we weren't very good. And so I got to play the last seven games on the varsity team, and we lost all seven. Um, which is no big deal because I'm a sophomore and we got older guys and I let them take the brunt of that. And then my junior year rolled around and, and uh, played in every game and we lost all 25. Uh, we did not win a game. And so we're up to 32 straight. So my senior year starts and I'm thinking, man, there's got to be somebody we're going to beat at some point. And we lost our first five. And so we're in the midst of a 37-game losing streak that I am definitely a part of. And after 37 ga- games, somebody was wise enough to finally decide we need to try something different. And so the, the thing they tried different was to take me out of the starting lineup. And I'll never forget that I didn't start that day. And one of my brothers in Christ, one of our members who's, who's probably joining us this morning, Jeff Roper, as a junior, took my place in that 38th game. And the Bulldogs won. And, and I sat there. By the way, after that, I didn't see too many minutes on the floor the rest of the year. And, and, and so I was a part of this 37-game losing streak. I finally sit. We win. I don't know whether to be mad or to celebrate, but the story gets worse. Because as bad as that is, in the midst of the 25 games my junior year, we played Carrier Mills, who was not very good. And we, we've got a chance. We've got a legitimate chance. In fact, as the game was coming to an end, somehow... The ball ends up in my hand, and I'm, I'm trying to get to our basket before time runs out, and, and this boy from Carrier Mills fouls me at the buzzer with us down a point. And so with nobody on the floor except me, I'm standing at the free throw line, one and one, got a chance over time, maybe break the streak, and I shot an air ball. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely hit nothing. And as the ball left my hand, I immediately knew this doesn't have a chance. And as it missed everything and hit the floor, there was kind of a collective groan from our side. And that is the reason, if you ever hear anybody refer to me to this, that is the reason my junior and senior year, I got the nickname Artie, which was short for Artichoke. And 
I just live with that. I live with that. And so that's, uh, yeah, that's my basketball career. Those are the things I remember. Um, anyway, I wanted to share that because you had shared a story about basketball. So in the passage today in Colossians 3, uh, Paul is going to address slavery. Uh, he's going to address slaves and masters, I should say. And he's going to address slaves first. And so before we ever read any of this, I want to take a minute just to hit the pause button to talk about a couple of things so we put this in the correct context. Um, many of our English translations, many of the ones you were looking, you were looking at at home this morning, they use the word slave in this passage in Colossians. Um, you'll see it in Ephesians. You'll see it in 1 Timothy. And, and I think we have a tendency sometimes when we hear that word or read that word to apply it in light of our own historical context, right? We're, we're prone to read the word slavery or hear it in the Bible and think of some race-based chattel slavery in which a slave was simply a piece of property that had absolutely no legal rights. And, and while certainly there would have been some in the first century uh, who fell into that category of having absolutely no rights, that's not the complete picture of what's going on in this text. The word that we translate slave, uh, your, your translation may say servant or bondservant, but the Greek word is the word doulos. And it often refers to people that surprisingly had some legal rights and some social status. As I was studying for this, I read that most slaves, um, we're talking about a time period under Roman rule where, where I, I read maybe a 60 to 90% of people may have been slaves. Um, but anyway, most slaves, they were not slaves from birth. They, they were not slaves for their whole life. And they were not slaves because of the race. To be sure, some were. Some slaves uh, were taken as spoils of war. They were forced, forced to work. But that's not the picture that, we, just have, that we, we need to have in our mind as we see this word slavery today. Uh, we, we need to understand the context of what Paul is speaking into during the first century. Now, in saying that, I want to be crystal clear. I am not in any way condoning first century slavery or the way it was practiced. And we don't want to make that mistake. Uh, slavery, slavery in any sense perverts God's uh, created intention for human beings. And so that, that puts it in a little bit of context today. Don't think of it the way we would think of Civil War slavery in the American South. Now, the truth of the fact that, that slavery in any sense, including what we read about today, um, goes against God's created intention Oftentimes that begs a question or incites, and criti uh, incites criticism from people. Uh, they'll ask the question, if that's the case, then why doesn't the Bible just come out and, and condemn it? Why is it that Paul here doesn't just outwardly condemn slavery? In fact, some people will go so far as to say that the Bible promotes slavery because we don't see the writers overtly condemning it. And I want to stand here this morning and tell you that the Bible does in fact condemn slavery but it does so in a way that is the most effective way possible. What you're going to see here in Colossians and what we see in other places that I mentioned, Ephesians and, and so forth, what Paul is doing is, is he's going to preach a gospel that causes change to happen from the inside out, right? The same gospel that changed us from the inside out is what Paul is preaching. And so instead of coming in and, and writing his own emancipation proclamation, so to speak, Paul speaks to the issue of slavery but he plants these seeds of freedom that are concomitant with the gospel. They naturally flow from the gospel. Um, plus, we need to remember 
that this letter, and you're going to see it in a few weeks, hopefully we'll be back together when you see this, you're going to see Onesimus' name mentioned in chapter 4. And we have to remember that Paul had devoted an entire letter to Philemon that addressed this issue of Onesimus' freedom. We studied that book before we started in Colossians. And if you remember in that book, Paul, he urges Philemon to free Onesimus because Onesimus, according to Paul, has become useful to him. Uh, he doesn't command him to do so. He doesn't say you have to, though he says he could. Instead, what Paul does is he urges him to do the right thing. And, and here's why, back to why we're talking about this. By, by urging Philemon to do the right thing, what Paul does is he, he dissolves this slave-master relationship and in its place, he puts together or erects a brother-brother relationship in which this former slave Onesimus uh, is to be treated with all the dignity with which Paul would be treated when he comes to town or if he comes to town. And, and Paul understands that to abolish the institution of slavery, the gospel has to first abolish all of the prejudices and all the assumptions that make slavery possible to begin with. And so... Make no mistake as we go through this today, the gospel is utterly, utterly opposed to slavery. What Paul wants Philemon to do, what Paul wants Christian masters in this text to do, what he wants us to do is, is he wants us, them, to make decisions that are based upon a changed heart, a heart that's been changed by the gospel. And when we get down to it, I think that's the point that's really at stake when it comes to this question about why doesn't the Bible come out uh, and take a, an, an overt, explicit stance against slavery, we have to ask ourselves the purpose of the New Testament. Is it about social change or is it about change of heart, right? Well, it's about change of heart. And, and listen, as a, as a pastor, as a person who firmly believes that we as Christians, uh, we, should be, we should be involved in different aspects of society. If we exchange the gospel for a social agenda, then, then we adulterate our mission. And Paul was careful never to do that. Uh, there, are, there are social implications for the gospel. And in those, we can never forget that our primary task is to relate to the world um, in a way that's not primarily concerned about political structures, but instead is to relate to the world and offer forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. And so Paul understood that. Paul understood that this structure would fall, this structure of slavery would fall when its foundation was weakened and the gospel was the best thing, the only thing capable of weakening that foundation. So hopefully it puts slavery into a little bit of context. It's different than what we think of in American history. And hopefully it reminds us as to why Paul addresses slavery the way he did. Uh, one last thing before we actually read these verses. These words in Colossians that we're going to read today are very much for us who find ourselves in an employee-employer relationship. Many, again, many of the slaves in first century, uh, the servants, the bond servants, they were dependent upon their masters for survival. They were. Uh, many, if not most, received compensation, housing, food, other benefits or essential things for their survival, just like we do. So today, as we read this and study this, we need to consider the role that, that we play in our context, right, of employee, employer. And so let's apply this to our lives today. So with that said, take a look. We will read verses 16 all the way through 4.1. God's word says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. 
Children, be obedient to, to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he, does wrong with, will re, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Chapter 4. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us this day, a day that um, is, is not like any day we could have predicted imagined um, the circumstances surrounding it. But God, we are grateful because it is a gift from you. We're grateful that you have provided us a means to be able to get together, to open your word, God, so that your word can change our hearts. Um, and God, as, as prayers have been voiced already this morning, um, may this be a time uh, that we draw closer to you. Uh, God, may this, may this be a time where we fall more and more in love with you. Um, God, may it serve to remind us to never take for granted an opportunity uh, to, to be with a brother or sister. Um, God, never miss an opportunity to share the truth uh, of who Jesus Christ is. Um, certainly, God, never, never take for granted an opportunity to gather in your house with brothers and sisters and offer worship and praise to you and to you alone. We love you. Praise all in Christ's name. Amen. So, we need to remember, as, as you've heard the last couple of weeks, that these verses, uh, 3.16 down to one, these are household codes. And these household codes would have been across the country, right? There were codes for everyone. What Paul has done and what Paul's doing in these verses that we've studied the last few weeks is to take these household codes but to put a gospel um, slant to them, if that's fair to say. Is to, is to let brothers and sisters in Christ, children of God, know that it's supposed to look different, right? These are a gospel-centered, revolutionary twist, twist to these codes. And so Paul starts, take a look at verse 23, he tells slaves, he says, Obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as merely those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Man, that's a lot to unpack, right? First thing Paul's doing here is he's reminding slaves that, that any work that they do is to be done with integrity in the presence of the Lord because that is their real master, right? And in this whole passage that we're looking at this morning, essentially what Paul's doing is he's, he's taking these scales and he's recalibrating them, right? And he's so that, so that servants on one hand and masters on the other hand, they begin to weigh things in the recognition of God's presence in their lives as opposed to just the way culture says to measure things or culture says we look at people. Paul says, no, no, no. You need, to realize, you need to realize we all have a master in heaven, and we need to weigh the way we treat each other based upon that, right? God's presence in our lives. And I think all of us, honestly, would do better um, to take time to do that every day we go to work, is to think that what we are doing today, right, and being, is being done in the presence of the Lord. And the way that I deal with people, if they're my employer or if they're my employee, it doesn't matter that God's presence is in our lives. And so in verse 24, 
Paul tells slaves to work fearing the Lord because ultimately that is who they serve. And as Christians, it's what we're called to do, to work fearing the Lord because that is who we serve, right? Just like the slaves being instructed in this passage, we're to work heartily from the soul because we work for the Lord, not our masters on earth. And that has has so many, so many practical applications for us, right? God is always watching us. That's what Paul's trying to get to. He's saying, don't be a people pleaser, right? Don't be someone that merely works to please people. And and if we think about him, we all know this guy, right? We work with this guy who, when the boss is around, man, they're employee of the month. And the minute the boss walks out the door, they're not doing a single thing. And Paul says, don't be that guy, right? Don't be the person that's diligent and busy when the boss is there and slack off when the boss leaves. Um, Apparently, this practice has been going on for centuries. This is not just an American thing. The point is our, our earthly boss, whoever that is, should be able to leave, right? Should be able to, to leave the office, should be gone however long he or she needs to be gone and not worry about whether people are doing their work. And the reason is found in Paul's words. He says, our heavenly master is always watching. And that should, that should cause every one of us to work with sincerity instead of simply putting on a good show. We are to work with our eyes fixed on Christ. He goes further, he reminds them they're to obey their master, their employer, in all things that don't contradict the commands of the heavenly master. Um, he, tells, he tells Timothy in his first letter to Timothy that to do otherwise, right, to, to, to behave otherwise toward those who are over us in this relationship we're talking about today, Paul says it's to be a conceited fool, a conceited fool who is interested in controversy and disputes that cause envy, strife, abusive language, and evil evil suspicions. That's what it means to be the people pleaser. That's what it means to work for men instead of working for God. It says, don't be a conceited fool. Do what you're supposed to do. It says, we're to render diligent, faithful, Christ-like service. The The kind Joseph rendered to Potiphar. And then later rendered rendered to the prison warden. And even later rendered unto Pharaoh. And so the point is, for the folks Paul was writing to, the point for us is that the hours we're on our job, our time, and our talents, they belong to the employer. And don't forget, we have it much easier than people did in the first century, the ones to whom this was originally given. We don't like our job, we can look for a new one. People in the position that we're in in the first century did not have that luxury that some of us are afforded. And so Paul says work, work unto the Lord, not for men as a mere people pleaser. Also in these verses, the things Paul's doing that I want us to see is he takes this whole idea of service or work, even forced service or work, and he raises it to a much higher plane. Look at verse 24. Paul says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. As I, was, as I was studying for this, I read, and I can't remember where I read it, but in one of the books I read, the author talked about how we tend to take look at work and divide it either into secular work or into sacred work. But he reminds us that God never does such a thing. God doesn't look at work and say, oh, well, this is secular. It's not as important. There's a difference. No, no, no. For believers, and and this is the audience to whom Paul is speaking, both then and now, 
we're supposed to understand that all work for the believer is elevated to a higher plane, to an eternal plane, and it will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what Paul's telling us, right? Which means there's a reward for the farmer, just like there's a reward for the person that fills this pulpit, right? There's a reward for a school teacher, just like there's a reward for a person that goes the other side of the planet as a missionary. And if you don't think that's true, if you think work's really not that important to the Lord, just consider Jesus' first 30 years on earth. The first 30 years he spent here, he spent most of it in a carpenter's shop. He spent his life working. And the one who spent so much of his life working diligently and faithfully, he's the one who will acknowledge and reward those who have given diligent and faithful service during their time. So work hard. That's what Paul's telling us. Work hard as those working for the Lord and not for man. Remember, Jesus worked as a man. He did. And as a Savior, he definitely worked. He didn't take time off. He didn't slack. He didn't call it quits when things weren't going his way or things were tough. He faithfully completed the work he was sent to do. So surely we can do work for the one who has outworked all of us. Because in reality, that's who we work for. We're employed by Christ not just a human master or a corporation. And so think of it this way. If you worked, if, if you worked in his carpentry shop, wouldn't you pull a, put a full day in for him? I mean, if Jesus was walking around the back lot, wouldn't you put on full day's work, a good eight hours for him? I mean, who would not do their best for him when he's there? And that's what we're called to do. And besides, if you look back in verse 17, Paul's already told us. He's already told us this. Back in verse 17, he says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So in our verses, Paul's just reminding us that in the workplace, these same rules apply. Only for us as believers, it's more personal, right? Because Jesus is there, and ultimately, Jesus is in charge. And as believers, we need to see him as we work. So Paul's instructions to the subordinate of this, uh, of this relationship, and he's done that. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, masters. And he reminds, he reminds those that are slaves, that are servants, that are bond servants. You don't work for your master. You work for the master. You work for the Lord Jesus Christ. So work. Do what you're supposed to do. Obey in all things as though working for the Lord and not for men. And then Paul turns his attention, as he's done in all three of these relationships. After giving these instructions to the slaves, Paul turns his attention to the masters. Take a look again at verse 1, where he says, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So he's pointing out again, in this relationship, like he did in the other ones, these, these, these are not one-sided affairs, right? His instruction to wives and husbands, his instructions to fathers or to children and fathers, they weren't one-sided, and neither is this one. And so I would say this: for those of you that are joining with us today who are employers. Ask yourself the question I kind of asked a while ago from the employee side. What kind of employer do you think Jesus would be? Right? If you were an employee at the Nazarene Carpentry Shop, I guarantee you Jesus would take a personal interest in you. I guarantee you he would genuinely care about your spiritual and your financial and your social welfare. welfare. He would definitely care about your family. And that's the kind of employer the Lord expects you to be 
That's what he expects Christian employers to be. Paul uses the words justice and fairness in telling, telling masters how they're to treat those beneath him. Um, I looked these up, justice. Justice here means correctly and righteously, right? That's what employees are owed. Employees are owed correct treatment, righteous treatment. Make no, no mistake, as Paul says this, that's how you're going to be judged. The Lord will judge you righteously. The ju- Lord will judge you correctly. You need to treat those under you the same way. But listen, employees, if you're not, doesn't mean you get to take the day off. Just because the employer does not do what he's supposed to do doesn't mean we have the right to turn around and say, well, I'll start doing what I'm supposed to when you start doing what you're supposed to. No, no, no. Right? That's not what's going on here. You keep working as though for the Lord because God is correct and perfect in his righteous treatment of us. And so that's what justice meant. And then he uses this word fairness. He says treat him with fairness. Fairness means equality. Right? As I looked this up, it meant equality here. And so employers, treat your employees with the dignity and worth that they, that they have as an image bearer of God, right? Obviously, equality here doesn't refer to equal pay or equal benefits, but it does mean equal respect and equal dignity because, again, your employees are people who are created in the image of God. So if you're an employer, again, be that kind of boss, right? Be that kind of boss because I'm telling you, that kind of boss can have an incredible impact on people, and on a community, I mean, what, what a witness, what a witness to the world a Christ-like boss can be. Because you're in a position to be a witness for Christ to everyone who works for you. You are, in a, you are in a position to speak to Jesus, speak for Jesus to those that you employ. So we see Paul gives instructions to both, right? This is what you're to do. This is what you're to do. Um, and then he wraps this section up by saying knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So employers, since that's who we're talking about right now, so let me remind you, you are not the ultimate authority, right? Employers will answer to Jesus. Employers are under authority and directly accountable to God. But I think there's more going on than just that. I think what Paul wants us to do is to realize that we have a master in heaven regardless of which one of these relationships you're in. And that's what he's saying. His, his wives know that you have a master in heaven. Husbands know that you too have a master in heaven. Children, fathers, slaves, masters, all of us are under authority. And, we'll be, and we will all be held accountable for how we live in these relationships. So it's pretty straightforward what Paul's doing here, what he's trying to communicate uh, his, these, these change in the so-called household codes, uh, what it should look like um, as Christian brothers and Christian sisters relate to each other um, in marriage, in a parental child relationship, or in a master-slave employer-employee relationship. And so from this, I think there are really three very, very simple applications. The first one is this. If you're the slave, if you're the employee, right, if we're on this end, of this relationship, man, work hard as, as though you're working for the Lord. I mean, that's the expectation the heavenly master has for us. Do your job. Do it to the best of your ability. Be diligent. Be faithful. Don't seek to please men. Work seeking to please the Lord. Doesn't get any simpler than that. But that was, that's what Paul is telling us. Employers, he's saying treat your employees correctly. 
be fair with them, be upright with them, show them the dignity and the worth and the respect they possess as image bearers of God. And then the last one is this. This is for all of us. Again, wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, and masters. Paul says, you need to remember and obey these principles that I've outlined because all of us have a master in heaven who is always watching. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this day. God, thank you for for the truth that we have seen over these last few weeks in this small section of Scripture. God, so many people take these verses and they pull them out of context and they apply it the way they want to. Um, but we see, we see the wisdom in them. We see the truth in them. God, this is, this is the way that you call us to relate to each other. Um, because this does. This, just as we talked about at the beginning, how the gospel has the power to, to weaken foundations of structures that are sinful and wrong and bring those down. Um, God, the gospel, the gospel has the power within a marriage relationship, within family dynamics, within uh, the dynamics of employers, employees. God, to change, to change lives, to change communities, to change the landscape. Um, and so God, help us, help us remember as we find ourselves at one end or the other in the relationship that, that we address today, that you are our heavenly master, that you are watching, that Jesus, you will rightfully reward those who have, God, those who heed your words, who obey you, who love you, um, who render faithful and diligent service unto you. God, help us to do that, um, not so that we get any recognition at all. Um, God, so that you get glory, um, you and you alone. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for, for this time today. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, again... As you've heard us mention several times, Chris and I talked about this the other day, that this time of the service was really going to be an awkward transition. This would normally be the time where we ask you, um, you know, to, to think about what God is doing in your life, uh, to, to, to come down and, and uh, profess your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to share with people um, what God has done in your life, or maybe to come down to join First Baptist Church or simply come to the altar and to pray. You can't do that here, but you can do that where you're at. You absolutely can do that where you're at. And so during this time, I would ask you not to, not to check out and think we're finished, that, that to do what we always do during this time, which is to allow the Spirit to, to work in our lives, to show us, um, show us where we fail, where we fall short, um, to teach us what we need to know, and to resp respond accordingly. And, and I just want to say that that whatever that looks like in your living room or your kitchen or wherever you're at, that if there's something that you need to share with us, um, call the office and let us know. We'll be here this week. Call us know what's going on in your life. If you have questions, what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus died on a cross for my sins? If you have questions about what it means to be a member of First Baptist Church, if you just want to say hello, you call us. We'll be here.